Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. In this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, we're lucky enough to be joined by not one, but two guests, a veritable double act of expertise. David Gibson and Anna Lovett are two senior members of the successful employment and HR team at Burnett Solicitors, covering Cumbria and the northeast of England. David has extensive experience in advising on employment law across a range of sectors, including charities, transport, housing associations, football clubs and retail. He understands the changing nature of work and the future planning that's required to ensure that the new challenges we face are approached in a practical and comprehensive way. In other words, this man knows how to dot the I's and cross the T's. For her part, Anna enjoys working closely with businesses to provide practical and solution-focused advice on all HR and legal queries. She helps businesses navigate the tricky and often complex work of mergers, 2P and other employment issues. She's also regularly involved in presenting seminars and workshops on a range of employment topics, including employee well-being and absence, redundancy and unfair dismissal. This is how Anna and I actually met several years ago now, when we both presented at a well-being event for the local CIPD branch. Having worked with both of them for some time now, I couldn't hope for two more knowledgeable guests to speak with on the podcast on how SMEs can make workplace well-being work from the legal perspective. Ready to find out how we got on? Hello, David. Hello, Anna. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. It's lovely to see you. Well, thank you very much for having us along. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. I'm really excited about this one because not not just because I know you and I know how entertaining, let's say, you guys are, but because I know a lot of our audience would love to hear from experts in the legal profession why they need to bother and I I can guarantee they will have so many questions about the way the law is currently and how that applies to them when it comes to their employees mental health and well-being so um, I think this episode is going to be golden so thank you thank you but I wanted to start on a more personal note now I know both of you know my personal struggles with mental health um, issues in the past and I did wonder if either of you have had experience of poor mental health either yourself or someone you've cared for that's made this a topic that's more personal to you. Yeah I, th- I think it's it's very dear to my heart on on two levels to be honest. Number one in terms of you know I, I, I trained and worked in London for a number of years and you know, it is a very stressful environment and one which can have a profound impact uh, on your mental health, on your confidence, on your self-esteem, um, on your ability to do all those wonderful, loving things that you'd want to do in a capital city. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm quite open about it, is that, that that can cause a lot of struggles as well in terms of the, the demands of clients and in terms of the demands of law firms. And, and that, can, that can create difficulties. Um, and you've got to be able to have the, the sense and the power to be able to stand back from that sometimes. I think my, my, my second uh, main area of interest as well is that, um, you know, I, I, I do some volunteer work 
uh, for an organisation which uh, deals with people with mental health problems. And I, I, I'm, you know, bound by provisions of confidentiality, but suffice mm-hmm. to state that, you know, we have a society which is ill at ease with itself uh, at the present time for a broad range of issues and right across, you know, um, social groupings, genders, etc. So it's something that Anna and I not only have knowledge of, but indeed are, are very passionate um, about ensuring that clients and individuals get the right level of advice. But yeah, it stems from a personal experience, but I think also that we, you know, we, we feel this is a very, very important topic for employers and employees to be facing in a structured and effective way. Mm. I, th- I think it's not an understatement to say that the vast majority of people are affected by mental health, you know, challenges with the mental health, whether that be personally or through family, friends, etc. You know, that is definitely my experience. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a week goes by that, you know, there isn't someone I know, um, you know, who's who's struggling. Now, obviously, that's on a spectrum, um, you know, and that those challenges will 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 fluctuate in terms of relapses and, mm. and challenges that they face in their in their lives. But uh, as I say, just with physical health, this will absolutely impact everyone. And listening to you two now, it does make me wonder why why wasn't it more of a thing five years ago, ten years ago? Why weren't we talking about it when I don't particularly think poor mental health is is worse today, but it's definitely more noticeable and they've been okay, the pandemic made an impact, the economy makes an impact, but we've always had mental ill health with us. Uh, but why weren't we talking about it before? Yeah, I think I think people were frightened, to be honest. Um, you're right. Um, you know, I've been recently. Um, I'm actually doing my ear level history. Well, my daughter is, um, which brought <laughs> me a whole range of issues on Elizabethan England and how the state dealt with issues in relation to mental health even then. And if mm-hmm. you look through the the tranche of legislation over the centuries, we've had quite a poor record in dealing with mental health issues. I think the change, the the mood swing, has been from a number of factors. Number one, um, people don't feel as frightened about talking about the issue. Um, I think people in the, the public domain and uh, you know the, the broader media have spoken about the issue very strongly, and I think that's opened up people's willingness to to actually address the issues and see it actually. And I always see it as a sign of strength to be able to say I'm struggling or I've got I've got uh, issues that I need to be dealt with rather than a sign of weakness. And mm. you know, th- those issues, they, they stem not just from the individual, but also from the social cultural backgrounds in, in which we come from. And I think what really concerns me as well, and, and, and I'm a, a governor at a local school, is how the impact of the, of the pandemic in particular had on young children and adult, mm. young adults coming through and how they're re-entering the work of work. So I think, yeah, we've seen this issue raised but I think it's going to be heightened over the next 10 to 15 years as we see these yeah. wonderful, talented, creative people coming into the workplace who actually are carrying quite deep-seated issues that couldn't be addressed or were forced on them by, by the pandemic. That's my fear. In fact, uh, I understand that poor mental health has become one of the leading, if not the leading, causes of employee tribunals. Is that, is that right? Was I right in that? 
definitely it's absolutely up there in terms of the you know the highest number of of, of claims um and even if the claims aren't necessarily labeled as say for example a dis disability type mm. of claim which is the type of claim that you would usually bring for a you know a mental health um you know condition even your standard kind of unfair dismissal claims breach of contract claims there is quite often an underlying current of it's impacting on, on, on someone's mental health, absolutely. And what we've seen over um, the years, since the Equality Act was introduced in 2010, where the definition of disability went to include both physical impairment and mental impairment, what mm -hmm. we've seen is a real development of that mental impairment definition. And from back in 2010, where maybe there was conversations around oh well that person hasn't been diagnosed with a condition therefore they can't possibly be disabled that has moved on significantly that you know you don't need to have a formal diagnosis to necessarily meet the definition of disabled under the equality act which then brings with it a whole host of kind of obligations on the employer you as a business in terms of the protections of it available um so it's a real growing area um in terms of um case law um and the developments of, of conditions coming under that definition and i think what's interesting and i'm going to I'm going to be open about this. I'm over 50. Honest, you couldn't believe it. No, no. I remember, I remember when the Disability Discrimination Act was coming on the statute books way back in, okay. in, in the mid-90s. And, um, you know, I worked for a trade union law firm at the time. And, yeah, we, we contemplated issues in relation to uh, mental health issues, etc. But really, the, the, the main focus was, you know, on that physical impairment. And what we've seen is a an incredible growth and development of those claims being brought, uh, and rightly so, um, to be honest, but also the requirement for employers to be far more sophisticated in how they're looking at the issue. So, for example, you know, Anna and I, you, you know, in our jargon, we talk about the firework employee. They come into the business, they're absolutely fantastic, they're putting on a great show, and then it all seems to fizzle. Well, why is that? Is it because that's just in their nature? But is there something underlying there? And the tribunals now will be expecting, will be expecting um, employers to look behind the surface, to lift the veil and ask the question, why has this come about? You know, mm. why? Mm. And, and to not be mini doctors or lawyers or psychologists, psychiatrists, but at least ask that question. And I think that that's placed next to responsibility on employers but also it will open up avenues for discussion and potentially open up avenues for more litigation as well. So, you know, it's an, it's an ongoing issue that needs to be examined. I think that's why we have focused so much of our work in recent years on trying to get employers to understand the breadth of their responsibility when it comes to employee well-being. But you raised a, a couple of points that I wanted to just to clarify, from your mouth, can you tell me, Anna, can you just explain to our listeners what their responsibility is for an employee's mental health and well-being? I know you've helped me with this in the past, but just spell it out so that they know exactly what legally they are required to do and how far that goes. Yeah, and there's a lot of responsibility um i'll start by saying saying that i mean 
ultimately you've got the underlying duty of care for that employee you know as a as a business as an organization you have a duty of care towards your your employees okay and that stretches both to physical well-being and mental well-being the health and safety executive the the standards out there in terms of what is expected and if you think about it from a physical point of view how often do we fill out risk assessments you know mm. for any any sort of um activity in the workplace you you know you'll be filling out a risk assessment for the physical well-being you know you'll be going on manual you know listing courses you'll have you know an assessment as to how you sit at your desk how your chair is how where yeah. your where your feet are are totally. we doing those same assessments in relation to mental well-being because the the expectation is the same on what businesses should be doing in relation to to their their employees mental well-being so there's so there's those duties there's those standards you've then got the uh, other standards which lie under the equality act um in terms of discrimination so if someone has a mental impairment which would be classed as a disability then there is a duty to um make sure that those people aren't at a disadvantage in your workforce so that is making sure they're not directly at a disadvantage but also indirectly at a disadvantage in terms of if you have policies that apply across the board to everyone but they place certain people with a certain condition at a disadvantage mm. then you're potentially at risk in terms of indirectly discriminating against those people you've then got the added duty so the proactive duty of making reasonable adjustments for those people who are at a disadvantage. So when we talk about that in the in the sense of physical um, you know, um conditions, it may well be um putting access in, in place, uh, you know, making reasonable adjustments to to the physical location of work. The same applies in terms of mental impairments, okay, in terms of making reasonable adjustments there. So for example, do you maybe need to think about a later start time you know if actually if someone is say for example struggling with a condition they're on medication taking antidepressants as a result of that they struggle in the morning you know the, the, the groggy it takes them a while to come come to so actually a reasonable adjustment in that situation may well be moving the start time a little bit later to allow for that same if say for example you've got someone who suffers with anxiety so actually getting on a tube uh, at rush hour is very you know causes you know a trigger or, or or causes significant symptoms therefore again can we move start times can we look at working from home for example there's a whole host of adjustments you can make and my key thing for employers if there's one thing to take away think outside the box you know do not start your conversation with oh well we can't possibly do that you should start your conversation with we can do that and how are we going to do that and that's how you will get there in terms of your reasonable adjustments. I mean, to me, uh, it all makes perfect sense. But I know you guys get called in when things have gone wrong. And I also think we get called in sometimes when companies are looking for a way to say that they've, they've done their best, but they're not really trying. That sounds so uh, so mean or dismissive, but we have been approached by companies who who are asking us to to just kind of 
provide the final support before they exit someone out of the business. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that you guys have been brought in because there are employees that they just can't work with. They're just totally unreasonable. I wonder if there's any cases that you would be able to share, obviously not breaking any confidentiality, no names being named, possibly historic, which would bring to life what you were just saying there, Anna, about um, how the law applies and companies who fail to see that and the the, the consequence. Because I think sometimes a cautionary tale is the best lesson we can ever learn. That's why Hansel and Gretel work so well with my kids. <laughs> I, I think in relation to that, I always think that lawyers should outline their CV and their leading cases where they've been so successful to gain sort of authority. Um, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you about my heaviest defeat. And mm. that was a situation whereby um, we've been brought in very, very late in the day in relation to an employee. Um, current medical evidence had not been taken. It was, say, two, three months out of date and didn't really address the issues of the return to work. Long story short, um, the claimant uh, was successful uh, against the client I was representing to the tune of £1.5 million. Half a million pounds of that was awarded against the second respondent, the line manager, who had failed to take into consideration current medical evidence. Mm. Now, that might seem an extreme example, but it's a real example. And I think it just goes to show that the employment tribunals will not hesitate to award significant damages against organisations where they have failed in their duty of care and in relation to their statutory duties to their employees. It also is a very sanitary note and lesson to line managers who may be making decisions uh, off the cuff or without seeking prior approval and authority because the tribunals do not hesitate to award damages against individual respondents where they believe they have breached the Equality Act. Now, I know that sounds very hard-hitting, it but, it's how, but it's how it is in the workplace. Now, that's a large figure, but you can, you can change the figures to £20,000 or £30,000, and £15,000 of that may have to be uh, borne by your line manager. The company's mm. got a very difficult conversation to have with that line manager, and also their other line managers who are then going to say, I'm not going to make any decisions if I'm going to be on the hook for this amount of money. So mm. I, think, I think listeners need to be aware of those ramifications. Um, and, that, that, you know, this is not just storytelling. Uh, this is not just, um, you know, shock and awe type of uh, conversations. It happens. It's as simple as that. And I think it's worth pointing out, as David says, that's an extreme example in terms of the value. But ultimately, you as a company, you've lost the moment that you're in that position where that employee is leaving. Because actually, that cost is already already there. By the time you're mm. having that conversation of, oh, this isn't working out, we need to, you know, we need to either settle this employee out or we need to move for dismissal. As the employer, you've already lost in that situation. You've lost that potential talent. You've lost the investment that you've made in that that individual. Um, and you're going to have to pay to recruit and, you know, train someone up to, to, to that stage as well. And then if, say, for example, an employee puts in a tribunal claim, even if you don't get all the way to the final hearing, the legal cost in itself in having to defend a tribunal claim 
are significant. And the issue that you have with employment tribunals is it's not the same as, say, the civil courts where, oh, if, if you win, the other party pays your costs, so the losing party pays costs. That doesn't happen in the employment tribunal. The standard right. position is that each party bears its own costs. So even as a business, if you go to tribunal and are successful, the likelihood is you paid, you know, us as much as we are obviously very good value. And <laughs> but ultimately, tribunals are expensive. They're expensive beasts. And no one, you know, that's not even just your legal fees, you know, um, accounted for. You've got to think of your management time. You know, your manager uh, yeah. who's having to deal with this claim, having to talk to the likes of me and David all the time, filling out witness statements, collecting documents, attending a five day hearing down in Manchester, you know, down in London. That is all time, all money that had there just been a proactive approach way earlier on, way down the line, you'd avoid all that loss of cost, but the loss of the talent as well, mm. loss of that individual and the investment that you put into them. Mm. I think also another interesting case that I've been looking at very recently, it's, it, it relates more to gender fluidity, is in relation to the case of uh, Taylor versus uh, Jaguar Land Rover. And what was interesting there was that Jaguar Land Rover fined about £180,000 in compensation, but the tribunal went further and made declarations and recommendations that um, uh, JLR appointed a diversity champion that they had a regular conversation with Stonewall, that they implemented a training programme, and that had to go on as public record. Now, obviously, that's a case in relation to gender fluidity, but I can see something very similar happening in relation to mental health as well. So that means that's a massive damage to public reputation and esteem in relation to a particular organisation. And also, if you're out there saying, we attract emerging talent, we care, we have an equal opportunities policy, and during the tribunal on issues like that, it totally undermines the message to the broader uh, commercial sector and internally to your organisation as well. So there's, there's kind of like, there's a moral and legal argument, but there's also a very strong economic argument in favour to being proactive rather than reactive in how you're approaching these issues. I'm always saying, well, that's what we're always saying, prevention is better than cure, right? Yeah. Mm. And it's much better to put the effort in up front, mm. even when you think you don't have a problem. Take care of yourself, your company, your colleagues, and then not have to deal with issues further down the line retrospectively. Or at least if you do have to, you'll be in a much better position. Mm. So what could you advise our audience, particularly if they're not in JLR size companies? They're in companies the size of yours. How can you advise that they should approach yeah. being proactive and preventative in their mental well-being, support for their staff? Because a lot of them will do things like, well, we do webinars. We've got flexible working available for some if they need it. What more should they be doing? For me, the key thing is investing in your, your people, particularly your managers. For me, the managers are the, gate, are the gatekeepers. Um, a lot of the time, um, they they need to know their staff, they need to uh, know how their teams are, uh, but also they need to be able to have the confidence to deal with some of these issues. Um, I, I, I've met with a couple of clients this week um, about this, this, this particular issue in terms of training their line managers and, you know, ultimately, 
they have a huge job, live managers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a lot to do. And a lot of the time, I think there's a real reluctance with, with any HR or employment law issue is kind of like, oh, that's really scary. So I just won't deal with it because actually I don't want to say the wrong thing. So actually I'd rather just not say anything at all. And then yeah. what happens is it just festers, you know, there's no communication, there's no engagement and, and, and things just, you know, fester until it, until it blows up essentially. So I think we don't expect line managers to be employment law experts, but, you know, as I say, this is our full-time job and we're still learning on it, but they need to be able to kind of at least have the confidence to deal with those day-to-day -day issues and also know what the red flags are in terms of where they need to seek additional support on those points. Yeah, I think I think the the important word that Anna used there was engagement. Um, and it's about effective engagement. It's not a, how are you? How's the family type of thing, which is lovely. That's really nice. But I think it's about a more effective engagement in terms of really drilling down to what the issues are what the potential solutions are, because one size does not fit all. I may be suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, and it may be the case that the employer deals with me in a certain way. That doesn't mean that another colleague, colleague X, is going to have to be dealt with in the same way. So that engagement piece is very, very strong. But something I think is fundamentally important as well is that employers think right across the board. They see the full picture of the jigsaw, as it were. So it's about engaging at the very induction process. It's about looking at how your family-friendly policy interlinks with your performance management. We, we all have families, irrespective of children, we all may be in a family unit and we may be facing different struggles, challenges, demands at different times. How are we looking at that? How are we looking at the individual and their journey through their life and how that's impacting on their workplace? Um, just, just using the, the child example, you don't stop being a parent at the age of five, yeah? You're mm -hmm. still a parent when you're 60, 65, 70 or what have you. You might become a grandparent. You might have care responsibilities for an elderly relative. All these dynamics can be playing on an individual when they come into the world of work and they put the wonderful mask on. Ta-da! We all do it. Mm -hmm. It's about having that engagement and thinking right across the piece as to how you're offering support. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. And it also makes the astute point that the line managers are the gatekeepers. But what I would say is, who cares for the carers? Who's caring for those line managers as well with that level of responsibility? So it's, it's about having that proper, holistic, proper discussion taking place within the workplace. It's about having a culture. It's culture. A whole corporate culture yeah. that cares. Yeah. Yeah. And that's open to it. And that's yeah. something that I love about the firm you both work for at Burnett's in Cumbria. I, I've been privileged enough to, to work with you over the last six months delivering um, the leadership program for your partners and uh, equity partners and heads of departments. And I know that you guys have got a culture that cares. But the, the issue that we come across often when we are saying to people, because you're saying everything that I, I, I've been preaching for a while. Uh, when we tell people that this is the solution, the solution isn't a one-size-fits-all. It's not do this webinar this many times a year and you're golden. It is making sure that you are able to respond to individual needs, whatever they may be, as best as possible. It's a best efforts endeavor. 
right? When you tell people that, their response is, Ooh, can't we just, uh, is there no app? Or something? people want, we're just so used to wanting quick, cheap, fast, now. Um, and cost is understandably a barrier for people in smaller companies in this current climate. Um, and I wanted to, to, I was hoping that you could help me uh, explain why it's better to spend a little more than you would like to perhaps in advance than end up spending a heck of a lot more than you have later on. So the cost of of it going wrong compared to the cost of investing, do you have any um, examples apart from the half a million for the line manager you shared? What I'd argue on that, now my, my background is actually more economics than law. So if we look at this from a right-wing economist's background, you're looking at the efficiency of the unit, okay? The efficiency of the workforce, what you're getting outside of the workforce. And that's how a lot of business owners approach economic analysis. How much am I getting out of Anna Lover in terms of fees? How much am I getting out of David Gibson in terms of fees, etc.? Just using that as an example, yeah? Now, mm -hmm. if it went wrong, for either Anna or I, then any organization is going to lose quite a bit of money, not only in terms of fee revenue, but also in sick pay, in terms of absence, in terms of stress that it's going to put on the rest of the workforce who are going to have to deal with that workload. If you look at the economics of that, that's quite a ridiculous situation to find yourself in. Yeah? So that's yeah. where you're going to lose money. It's not just in terms of you know, the legal case that Anna and I may bring against the organisation, it's the lack of effective productivity. Now, if you're investing in your workplace, and I'm not coming at this as some walk guardian reading, bald-headed 55-year-old, I'm coming at it from a very strident economic point of view. If you give that culture, and you're right, the culture of efficiency and support, etc. number one, Anna and I are going to come into work a little bit more motivated, a little bit happier, yeah? We're going to be productive. We're going to be doing the extra work that we can do to promote the business. Our sickness absence would be reduced. The possibilities of us bringing claims is going to be reduced. So you see from an economic point of view that if you're investing, and it doesn't take, it's, it's, not, it's not a million pound budget that you're talking about here, but in how you communicate, how you get the culture right, it's actually a money-saving device rather than a money-losing device. And I think that, that there's a bit of a cultural issue there in terms of the liberal capitalist model in the UK. You go across to Scandinavian countries, which have a more social democratic uh, uh, view on it and a culture, social culture of support, and they've been doing this for years. Now, not mm. only are they pretty robust organisations, but they're quite a happy society as well. So there's an economic gain in taking it rather than economic detriment. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. So um, the, the one piece of advice that you'd give to our listeners about the importance of creating a well-being culture in, your, in their workplace, what would that be? I, th I think it comes down to what, what I know we've already said it on this podcast today, but put it on the agenda and genuinely mean it. Mm. 
Mm. Like it, it's as simple as that. It's got to be on the agenda across the board. So it, it is it is a business agenda and mean it. You know, there's no point putting it on the agenda and saying, oh, yes, we're going to do this. As you say, we're going to have all this training or we're going to put on these webinars. If actually then if someone goes off sick with the depression, there's still an eye roll in the office. Mm. But, mm. you know, so that would be my one piece of advice if, if there was just one. And David, for you, as a fellow well-being rebel, I'm going to give you a fresh question. As a fellow well-being rebel, because I know you are, because you're no, your TLP graduate now, what is the one change that you'd like to see implemented in workplace well-being? Well, can I, can I say one change but three pillars? And okay. Number one, number one would be the principle of flexibility. I'm not just talking about flexible working. I'm talking about a flexible approach to how you deliver the services that you offer. That's the first thing. The second thing would be real deep-seated engagement. Talk to your workforce. They are not stupid. They are your crown jewels. They are the, they are the main business source within your organization to make it productive, effective, and a great representative in the business community. And the third principle is in relation to responsibility. Anna spoke very eloquently at the start about the range of responsibilities that employers have in the law. Have that moral responsibility to your workforce, but at the same time, encourage your own workforce to be responsible as well. One of the real positive things of the course that we went through with you and the team was that you were saying to us, David, look after yourself. You take time, you exercise, you think about your interests, you think about your hobbies, you've got to take some responsibility as well. So that's my three pillars approach, flexibility, engagement and responsibility. And don't make them buzzwords, make them part of your culture within your organisation. Gosh, I loved having you two on. Um, this has been absolutely fantastic. I think it's been such a helpful um, episode for people who are still trying to get to, to grips with why they have to do this and what they have to do and how far they have to go. And I'm sure we'll get um, many, many questions about this in the future. So I hope you'll be willing to come and join us uh, another day sometime. But I just want to thank you once again, David Gibson and Anna Lovett from Burnett Solicitors in Cumbria. Thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.